0: It's time for Bright Ideas, an eclectic conversation on the issues impacting our markets and our world, featuring Bright Thinkers, brought to you by the Structured Finance Association in Washington, D.C., here's your host, Michael Bright. In the early 1980s, med schools were telling their students to stop studying infectious diseases. The thought at the time was that science had the tools to control infectious diseases and to prevent their spread. And so students should focus their energy elsewhere. Thank God some students like our next guest didn't listen. I'm Michael Bright and welcome to this episode of the Bright Ideas podcast. Okay, so Dr. Leone, thank you for joining us again.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Really good to talk to you. it be nice to speak to you under different circumstances one of these days. We're yeah, still in lockdown. it feels like it's
1: never going to end. Yeah, I know.
0: It feels like nothing's ever going to end. this winter weather and uh, the COVID shutdowns. But th- this is our podcast's first ever part two. So you have the distinction of... Of being the first ever part two podcast, I think that's- yes,
1: because we haven't figured out how to end the pandemic. So let's hope there's not a part three. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what part
0: three could possibly be, but I'm sure it'd be really, really bad. Okay, so um, <laughs> look on our our first conversation, we were sort of right in the be- toward the beginning of recognizing how severe this this um, crisis was going to be, and and the shutdowns had had started, and there were a lot of um, epidemiological studies saying we're going to be going through these rolling periods of being open and then being closed. It seemed really scary at the time. I think it's been as scary and as bad as we thought, um, but we're living through it and trying to move forward. And so here we are. Now, in the ensuing time, we, uh, we have come up with a vaccine, and I think you've been vaccinated. Is that correct?
1: I have. I've gotten two doses of the Pfizer vaccine and I feel like a new man. Best shots you've ever had or, you know, up there toward the top? Oh, I will put this I will put this up at the top. We haven't had anything like this in our lifetime in which a vaccine changes how you view yourself in the world.
0: Yeah. When you mentioned that you got vaccinated, you said that it was a strange confluence of emotions that it wasn't just going in and getting a shot. It was, you had a bigger, you know, set of, of
1: feelings at the time. So w-
0: what was going on there? That's an interesting kind of story that you shared.
1: Uh, yeah. You know, I'm a physician, so I've been taking care of patients for, you know, coming up on 40 years now and living through the HIV epidemic, we were really struggling to find some way of preventing people from dying. And in this case, I mean, this thing sort of blew through with coronavirus and to have now we're at a half a million deaths just in the U.S. alone. It's its devastating. And so although I'm used to being in a position of providing care, I'm not used to going to the front of the line to get something that um, honestly, we didn't think we would have something as quickly as we got it or to have a vaccine as effective as it was. Um And so the day I went in, I realized like, my God, I'm getting something that at that point, like 1% of the U.S. population had access to um, that could prevent me from dying from a disease. And I felt like I didn't deserve to actually be there to get this, that there were a lot of other people who I would rather see uh, get it. Um, that there were folks who I knew died within the last month or two um, from this. And I thought, geez, if they just held on a little bit longer. Um, And then it was this sense that, well, maybe I can begin to think about getting back to a normal lifestyle at some point. Not now. We'll come back to that, I'm sure. So there's this real mix. Um, And there was this also this elation that science came through in a way that I mean, there's just nobody who thought we would get a vaccine that would be 94, 96% effective. Impressive. That's unbelievable.
0: Talk just a minute about sort of the science of this particular virus and this particular vaccine. And we had multiple versions that were highly effective. Is it a function of the amount of resources we brought to bear on this? That's a high efficacy rate.
1: As I said, we we just didn't anticipate there would be this kind of efficacy. So I think part of it is luck. Um, But uh, some of it really boils down to money that was invested in basic science for research going back. And so it's a conversation I've had with other folks that sometimes people say, well, why should the federal government spend money on academic centers at the NIH to do research on things that we don't know what the benefit would be? And the answer I would give now is just this. So it it turns out that there was a lot of work being done on vaccine development for SARS when SARS-1 came out, and then it sort of disappeared. But they had identified the spike protein as really being a key part of the protein to allow entry into a cell. So with viruses, if they don't bind and enter into a cell, they're not living. So they need to be able to do that in order to be able to take over and replicate. And essentially all our efforts are trying to block that from happening. So there's a lot of work that led up to identifying what that protein structure was. There was money that had gone into looking at messenger RNA vaccines, looking Mm -hmm. at other infections. And so all of a sudden you had this convergence where they realized like, look, we can look at what was key correlate for what we think was immunity with the SARS-1, um, understand that that's a key protein and then rejig it to deal with this protein spike for SARS-CoV-2. And that gave us a huge head start.
0: Fascinating. and that was NIH led research?
1: Yeah the, yeah, the Vaccine Research Center at the NIH.
0: That's fascinating. I I actually didn't know that. So the the SARS-1 that was it started in in China and it hit Taiwan pretty um severely, right? Um, I, I I know there's this uh image of a bunch of uh Taiwanese in Taipei at a at a theater and they're all wearing masks and it almost looked at the time the first time I ever saw the image it almost looked like you know, some sort of modern art, but it was a real picture of people in a theater in Taipei um, wearing masks. And now we all relate to that image um, too much. So it so happened, that was in the early 2000s, right?
1: Right. It was. And, you know, it was, um, it wasn't as infectious as SARS-CoV-2, but it was more lethal. So um Transmission of viruses depend on sort of the efficacy of, of being able to be transmitted, the way it's transmitted. And obviously, if it's something that you breathe, respiratory viruses are going to be much more easily transmitted, can be casually transmitted. Um, but if a virus is too lethal, you sort of wipe out the ability to transmit it from person to person. Um, so this was almost a perfect storm now, um, while the first SARS pandemic sort of died out very quickly.
0: Right. I remember actually having this discussion when it started saying, I don't understand the fact that it it can be asymptomatic in so many people. That seems like a good thing. That means you could have it and never even know. And that means your life has not been disrupted. But the epidemiologists were saying, no, that's a bad thing because that means it's going to spread without you even knowing that it's spreading. I guess the same is from mortality, that it's a symptomatic rate and mortality rate that's right in this danger zone that means you can't control the spread of it.
1: Yeah, well, remember with the original SARS uh, outbreak that we had, um, there you could actually screen people based on symptoms. So they were doing airport screening, looking for temperatures and all that because people got sick um, and they had symptoms and they weren't shedding virus for a prolonged period of time prior to developing symptoms. For SARS-CoV-2, you wind up with the majority of folks having mild to no infection and over half of transmission occurs asymptomatically. Either the person never gets sick or they're shedding virus before they develop symptoms. So our basic screening mechanisms don't work.
0: Yeah. So do do we have now with a year's worth of data, we're coming up on a year of the shutdowns longer in China. I mean, the US was really the last kind of, it moved its way sort of West, you know, from China, it felt like, and into Central Asia, Europe, and then jumped the Atlantic and came here. Do you have any sense as to why it treats certain people so fiercely and and others it seems to just pass right on by do we do we know the answers to these
1: questions yet we know some um you know there's still a lot we don't know uh so you always have to respect the pathogen and realize that there's a lot about this that we don't know so first of all it's it's a systemic infection even though it's transmitted through the air and in through the lungs um it infects the whole body so We think of HIV as not just being a sexually transmitted disease. You infect the entire body. Well, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID infects the entire body, but um, entryway really depends on a few key receptors that are not so common in young children and increase uh, in older populations. So, that's one of the things, if you've got the receptors that are there um, allowing entry into the body, you're going to more likely acquire infection and you may shed at a higher rate. The second part is this virus plays off of other comorbidities that both increase um, the rate of replication, but also um, the body's um, not being able to fight it off or having more disease, severe disease outcomes. So folks who are obese, diabetics, Um, The elderly folks with pulmonary or cardiovascular disease all have increased risk of actually developing disease, and we don't see that in younger populations. So I think all of those things have really played a role in it. That said, I think we're grossly underestimating the long-term consequences of infection. So I'm not so sure... Um, I'm one who would say, well, you know, if you got infected and you had mild illness, it's fine. It's no big deal. Move on in your life. You're lucky. Yeah. I mean, about a third of people are what we call long haulers, people who actually have significant um, problems, either with fatigue or brain fog or cardiovascular issues that happen uh following infection that goes on for months
0: hmm. i i often have fatigue and brain fog but i i don't think it's <laughs>
1: <laughs> i think it's attributed to your work Sometimes and cardiovascular two kids walking
0: up steps <laughs> of groceries but uh not sure that i can still taste everything okay so i don't think it's uh sars cov 2 too but um all right so from where i sit and Correct me, you as you would, correct me if and where I get this wrong. But from where I sit, I feel as though I'm watching a tale of two levels of competency. The, on the one hand, we have Big Pharma, much maligned, obviously. Um, not a, this is not a commentary on whether that's justifiable or not, whether The Constant Gardener is a great movie or not. It is entertaining. <laughs> we don't know how accurate it is. but um, Okay, so Big Pharma, building off of NIH research, Wonderful. Develops a 95 two multiple 95 percent efficacy vaccines. In fact, the Johnson and Johnson one is comparable, right? In in terms of efficacy. Well,
1: I, I, the data isn't out yet on that, but the preliminary data would suggest that it's about 74 percent effective in preventing, oh uh, but with one shot, but virtually the same outcome in terms of preventing severe um, morbidity and death. So. All three of the vaccines, Johnson, Johnson, Pfizer, Moderna, um, basically prevent you from dying from COVID, which is pretty amazing.
0: That's the idea. So on the one hand, we have record uh, time to, to production of a vaccine, and now they're pumping these things out like crazy. How do you contrast that in your mind with, from where I'm sitting, what it feels like co- just complete inability to get shots into people's arms, complete uh, lack of you know, a plan. I mean, again, I'm not a governor and I don't, I don't, so I don't want to sit here and, 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 you know, throw blame at anybody in particular. You you probably, you can do that because you are more informed, but it does feel like it's been like a year and I'm just sort of sitting here thinking, so you didn't know that you would need to have a registry list of everybody in your state and their age and a contact number so that you could contact them. It's so dispersed. I signed up for the DC um, health daily email updates, and in the process in DC is that you get an email in the morning and it basically says, uh, or I guess it's actually in the afternoon. It says tomorrow morning, you know, twenty five hundred vaccines will become available if you're above sixty five years old and you live in one of these wards. Click here to register. Um, but that doesn't seem like the most efficient way of reaching. The population. And so it just kind of was like if I was mayor or governor a year ago, I think I would say I want a list of everybody, every constituent that we can, let's do our very, very best, their age, whether they have any um in in any of these symptoms or any of these uh traits that cause them to be at higher risk whether it be diabetes or or whatnot um have them self-report we can do a pr campaign every you know you can call in and give us your information and then you would just literally have a list that you could pivot table you know prioritization cues but you just go down the list as the vaccine becomes available it doesn't feel like we did that but maybe am i oversimplifying the situation like how do you look at this rollout and and
1: well i think um you know Uh, what I had mentioned earlier about science um, and the investment. So at the federal level, you know, you were you worked in the Senate. The Senate loves to fund the NIH. Who doesn't want to fund the NIH to do right. things? So there was money out there for some of the basic science work. And I think we underestimated um, the ability of science to, to actually solve this. And, of course, like I said, I think there's a bit of, wouldn't say luck, but fortunate that the way things worked out as quickly as they did. But that money is there, and you've got folks to think through things. But public health is the type of thing that um, if it's working well, nobody knows it's going on in the background. And it's really hard to fund something that you actually don't see why you're funding it. And so the running joke uh, for those of us who spent time in public health, that the amount of money and support for a program um, was correlated with the disease so as the disease rate went up, you got more money, more attention, more push from a governmental level to get things done. But as the disease went down, that money and support would go away. Well, public health has been underfunded now for decades, and our healthcare system is very fragmented. So if you're looking at trying to do mass vaccination, we don't have a system that delivers that. We have almost sort of what happened in Texas with the electrical power grid and that it's not organized. There's no backup. Um, there's not any pre-planning for things. It's a free market. So people go wherever they want. So now when you have 20 or 30 percent of people who are outside of healthcare or can't get in to see their primary care provider, um, you don't have a mechanism for delivering the vaccine, And that turns out to be a huge obstacle. In addition, I agree with you. I think there's plenty of blame to go around that there was no thought. We I mean, you knew a year ago, the push was warp right. speed around a vaccine. Right. Why in the hell? don't you have infrastructure going in place about how you're going to get shots in the arms? Cause you means, can have a vaccine. Yeah. If it doesn't if, get like
0: in the like arms the, the images of people, uh, you know, of governors and of, of Mike Pence and like people having these meetings, And I'm thinking, well, you guys aren't like trying to crack the MRNA code here. And like you said, the, you know, the protein spikes, you're not doing that. Um, UPS is delivering the stuff you're not built. You know, I, it's great that you're making arrangements to purchase stuff, but like, Who's in charge of the list of people so that we can get through the list? You know, like that just didn't happen. It feels like.
1: No, we don't have the infrastructure. And a lot of health departments don't have lists of names or addresses. They don't have the capacity staffing to do it. In the middle of a pandemic, when you're trying to do all this testing, you're blowing through personnel, staff, and money trying to get testing, trying to take care of folks. And there needed to be bodies prepared to go out and provide shots. You know, I was listening this morning to, um, I think in North Carolina, they're allowing now EMTs to deliver injections. And you go, why in the hell weren't they able to do that before? Yeah. Because everyone had their little spot that they stayed in with no right. idea what you needed around surge capacity. So there was a lack of imagination. There wasn't any support. And there wasn't any realization early on that the biggest obstacle is what we're experiencing now, getting the vaccine into right. arms. And
0: I would have thought that there was going to be like National Guardsmen on the corner of you know, half the streets in America by now with shots, but.
1: Maybe- well, there, there should have been, uh, I mean, you know, so part of it is just the production end, which is going to take us a little bit of time to get caught up, but I, I actually think there'll be enough vaccine for everyone come the end of June. Uh, if you look at the numbers, we're going to have more than enough vaccine. The other thing I think w- was a huge mistake was this idea of herd immunity, that if you let the virus just sort of go through the population, um, you could have that happen very quickly and then people are protected. And I, one, that's a bad idea to begin with because people die. Um, but the other thing is with this virus, um, what they're seeing in South Africa are that people are getting reinfected with the right. new mutant yeah. who had COVID before. And so the problem you get into is uh, when you start doing that, there's a, you, again, you underestimate yeah, the pathogens' ability to outwit sort of our immune response. These are all science experiments
0: occurring in real time at mass scale, and it's difficult to have the right answer. I do, yeah. I mean, that, that's exactly right. You heard immunity doesn't work if if the virus can reinfect you, and we had all just been assuming that that wasn't possible, but turns out that's not necessarily the case, and it doesn't work if, uh, uh, or certainly not a good idea if, um, like you said, these long haulers. You know, you're going to have severe symptoms for the rest of your life, then herd immunity is not necessarily the way to go. There is one other, and again, um, as always, correct me where I get this wrong, but one other thing that I felt like as a debate that we didn't necessarily have, or maybe we did, and it just happened very quickly because the answer was the one that we chose and it was the obvious one, but did we have a proper discussion around the public health trade-offs of um, the virus itself versus the health costs of shutting everything down. I think one can make the argument in hindsight that we did because we funneled so much money into the economy. Okay. So that is not, not you, you know, it's not to say that, um, I mean, restaurant owners and small business owners absolutely completely crushed. Um, of course, uh, mental health, uh, alcoholism, all these numbers are, are on the rise, but the government did and has, and continues to put a lot of money behind, um, you know, direct payment checks, Extended unemployment benefits. It's not perfect by any means, but we, you know, our economy coupled with federal spending has been probably, I would say, more nimble in hindsight than I would have thought it was a year ago. And the virus has been more you know, is, is outwitted, been more, has been smarter than I think we all thought it was a year ago. So we probably made the right choice to say, look, there are going to be downstream consequences of shutting the economy down. We'll fix that with direct payment assistance and flooding the system with as much money as we can, um, but we got to get the virus under control. It just didn't feel like we ever had the debate. I don't know if you felt the same way or as an epidemiologist, you just knew that it wasn't even worth having that we had to shut this thing down.
1: No, I I don't think we had a a strong enough debate. And I think the debate now we're having about reopening schools is the debate we should have had a year ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think um, part of it is you, you try to make decisions based on data and science. And so we didn't have a lot of information. So initially what we did being draconian needed to happen because we just didn't understand exactly what transmission was like and what needed to be shut down. And I think the government support to try to keep people afloat was really important. Um, I do think we failed in delivering a consistent message around how you prevent transmission. So uh, part of the reason why we're still in trouble is we're beginning to reopen some of the things that I think we shouldn't reopen yet when the numbers Mm. and caseload is so high. So a consistent message around distancing and masking, um, washing hands, uh, avoiding crowds, needed to happen from the top down. It should have been equally enforced across at the state level. I'm not saying people should have been put in jail or penalized, but a consistent message around that would have been really important. And I do think that the shutdown was important and made a difference. Um, But like I said, there's a tendency to let up too soon. And I think one of the things you have to understand is the virus is still there. It's not gone. So uh, if you take your foot off the brake and you put your foot on the gas by getting people out there you're allowing more access to virus and the transmission rate goes up so the question is how do you how do you do this in a smart way I think with schools we didn't have enough a discussion around the impact, the deleterious impact on kids from a socialization standpoint on, on working parents trying to work at home. And in particular for women who bore, I think the brunt of the challenge of trying to keep their kids at home, educate them and work at the same time. Um, And so we need to get back to school. And I think the data is there to support that it can be done safely, but there again, should have been money put into ventilation and masking and providing teachers with more support with Mm -hmm. barriers and all that um
0: no the kids have born the 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 kids have paid a big price um many people have i just know anecdotally you know from in in this orbit i I see kids paying pretty heavy price you know having missing out on not only experiences but like these critical learning years these critical social interaction years and it's going to be it's going to be interesting when we watch them all get back together.
1: It's going to be PTSD for, for kids and for us. I mean, I, 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 you know, my daughter just had her 21st birthday and um, our sort of adopted grandmother had us over for a birthday cake, oh, just a nice. small bubble. Yeah. She had been vaccinated. It was the first time in a year that she was able to hug my daughter.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. PTSD. That's that. You're exactly right. We're we are going to be dealing. We we all probably have so much adrenaline right now that we're not uh, from the thing that we're not recognizing it. But it's going to be there. Yeah, next thing to watch. But for the last few minutes here, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about the new normal looking forward. So there are seven billion people on this planet. That is a lot. I continue to refine my amateur anthropological thesis that the reason we keep having hundred-year storms that things that historically had been 100 year events, we're having them every 10 years. It's because the historical periods we're looking at, we had one tenth of the population or even less. And so that we just keep we're amplifying the severity of all of these uh, types of events with our interconnectedness. Um, so we got 7 million people again, you don't have to comment on that right now. It's not peer reviewed thesis at the moment, <laughs> but <laughs> we're working on it.
1: Hey, it's all so right. right. We, know, it's a podcast. You can you didn't, cite anything you I want. I would say
0: I didn't expect the movie 12 monkeys to make sense to me in my lifetime, but it's suddenly Does now, doesn't it's, it? It's, it's it makes more sense than I would have liked. So we have 7 million people on this, on this planet and we're, and eventually we will all have SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, but what are the changes that are in store for us? Are we going to be wearing masks? Forever, we, you know, is it going to be sanitation and an airplane? Like, what what do you predict life is going to be like on the other end of the vaccine?
1: All right. So this is my free zone. It's not based
0: free on zone. any okay. facts. It's my I impression. I just threw out a completely yeah. indefensible
1: theory about... The population growth. So all right. Gonna, well, I like that because I can make up whatever I want. This is a safe uh, zone. It's
0: like a safety zone. With the, but I do want to come back
1: to this. So if we have a podcast three, we have to see what whether my predictions were right or not. We'll change it. So, no, it's editable. So, no, 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 no. I want to be held accountable. It's okay. okay. <laughs> right, right. So, so so, first of all. You are out of, of academia whole, now. Good.
0: Okay. Yeah, right. I am. Right.
1: So okay. the only way of getting to the other side of this is we have to vaccinate the entire damn planet. There is no way of getting past that. So you have to get probably 90, 95%. So that's the first challenge. I think we will get to um, very high percentages in the U.S., provided we can actually get past some of the um, issues around people accepting vaccines come the fall. So by June, um, if you want to get a vaccine in the U.S., you'll be able to get it. Um, And then by the fall, we should really begin to start opening up. And what it's going to look like is schools will be open in the fall. Restaurants will be open with more limited capacity. Same thing with sporting events and um, concerts. But I think we'll be wearing masks when we go into mass crowds. Um, and masks will continue to stay in place until we drop the rates of transmission. Um, And then I think what we're likely to see is that the surveillance system, which we should have invested in a long time ago, there'll be a lot more money to actually look at the isolates that are circulating for escape mutants, and that we will get boosted once every year or two years more and were to cover any um, escape mutants as opposed to probably needing an immunologic boost. So let me try and,
0: layman terms this COVID-19 boost on a regular basis so that if the thing evolves, we're still protected
1: against it. Okay. Yep, exactly. Um, and I think that that's likely going to be the case with um, if we have a, it'll be more like influenza at some point, only with a lot more caveats around it. Meaning, you know, we don't think about influenza so much in August. Uh, you think about it as pure, purely being seasonal. I don't think this is just going to be seasonal anytime soon, but I do think that we'll get back to a more and more near normal but we're going to be wearing masks. You get on a plane, you're going to want to wear a mask and be wiping things down forever. I, I don't see that changing.
0: That's fascinating. So I I yeah, yeah, I mean, I think at at minimum the PTSD is gonna only people don't want to wear masks for the remainder of this year, right? I mean, we're still we're just gonna be uncomfortable going into new situations. You're talking COVID specific. As a public health expert, as a as an infectious disease physician and as an epidemiologist, what do you think the world I mean, we've had we had SARS-1, we've had a couple of these outbreaks. Do you tie this to deforestation, to you know, just the way we treat are the planet that we all share. I mean, we, we probably need to think bigger.
1: Yeah. I mean, the majority of pandemics originate from animals to humans. So 75% or more of these big events are zoonotic infections. And as we've had global warming, as we've ripped down the rainforests and as we've sort of increased the population, so we're out in more and more rural areas, that intersection between us and animals only has gone up, and the ability to see something get transmitted from some place out in the middle of nowhere to the rest of the world happens very quickly. So there may be a big push now to say, look, we're all in this together. It's a global community. We're going to have to increase surveillance and we're going to need to deal with some of the inequities that exist. You can't have, for instance, South Africa. One of the theories right now for possibly for the mutant that's developing there is that they have probably the largest untreated HIV-infected population in the world there. And it turns out that folks with HIV can shed coronavirus for prolonged periods of time if they get infected. And these right. are folks that are not treated. So all of a sudden you have to recognize that you've got to worry about disease burdens for other things and that, co- you know, that impact because we're all impacted we're, by it. So We're interlinked.
0: <laughs> one another in our surroundings and, and, and the, the other living creatures around us, we have to take care of one another and take care of this earth that we all live in.
1: So I do think we're going to see more of these type of events, maybe not as severe as this, but there will be other zoonotic infections with pandemic sort of outcomes. Um, And we're going to have to fully face the fact that unless you deal with healthcare issues and instability in other countries, it will come back to impact us. We can't live on our continent by ourselves.
0: Dr. Leone. I don't mean this the wrong way, but I hope that you're not on for a part three, unless it's to spike the football and talk about baseball games and how we made it through. But uh, as always, your insights have been invaluable. We really appreciate you sharing your your wisdom and your thoughts with us today. It's been a great conversation.
1: All right. Well, wear a mask and get vaccinated as soon as you can with whatever vaccine that's available.
0: That's the doctor speaking. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you very much.
1: (laughs) Bye.